Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Andy J Podcast. Hey, welcome to the very latest Andy J podcast. Thanks for choosing us to be your audio companion for the next hour or so. Now, my guest this week is pretty special, a founding member of Boyzone. He was also went on to become a very big actor. He was in Coronation Street twice, and he's a massive campaigner for children with learning difficulties, and he's just a very insightful and fascinating man. I am, of course, talking about Keith Duffy. Now, this is fun because I have spoken to a couple of Keith's bandmates previously. I've had Ronan Keating on this show, as hopefully you've heard. I've also had his Westlife buddy, who he is in a band with called Boys Life, Brian McFadden, on the show. And I've had Shane Lynch on the show, also from Boyzone. So it's nice to be able to put some more of the jigsaw puzzle pieces together, if you know what I mean. So I kind of came into this knowing a little bit about Keith and obviously ahead of every interview, I I always do a fair chunk of research. So I was really, really looking forward to chatting to Keith and I thought he'd be quite a ball of energy and and, and fascinating. I didn't realise he would be on kind of guru level thinking with some of his thoughts and experiences on the world. He is a terrific, terrific guy, really good company, really, really enjoyed this chat. So I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. Thank you for choosing us. Tell your friends, share, follow, subscribe, whatever the words are these days. Please spread the word and enjoy Keith Duffy. The Andy J Podcast. A man who's entertained us for over 25 years, first in one of the most successful boy bands of all time, Boyzone, and then as an actor and an advocate, you'll remember him from two stints on Coronation Street, for example, I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. Keith Duffy. How are you doing, Keith? Well, you know what, Andy, I'm just delighted. I'm delighted that you could read my writing from my intro. That was great. Well done. Well written. <laughs> Do you know what, Keith? I, I never rehearse these intros, right? I just kind of busk them. And I, I kind of thought to myself, well, how do I do you justice? I can't because of the amount of things you've done. You know, if I, I, could, I could basically spend an hour talking about how many people you've performed to and the new band and all sorts of other things, but then we wouldn't have any time to chat. <laughs> well maybe you don't need to speak to me at all maybe you know it all already <laughs> <laughs> that would be i mean i'm not sure many people would tune in for that to be honest keith i, I do these long intros as you've heard and, and hope people will stay with us they're here for you my friend that's what it's all about well the intro was fantastic andy like i said it was like as if i wrote it myself <laughs> <laughs> well look, I'll, I'll i'll save it for you and send it to you as a ringtone if you like if you're ever having one of those low days <laughs> i mean keith let's your achievements are ridiculous. You know, it's when we look at the statistics around, I mean, Boyzone on its own, if that's all you've done in your career, you've done an awful lot. But you've done so much more since, and you've also used your fame for incredible good things. So, Keith, if we can have a sort of walk through your life, not necessarily in chronological order, just kind of what's important to you and so on. But but let's just start very quickly, because, you you know, it sounds like that little intro has given you a lift. Just to kind of put this out there front and centre, being in the public eye, living the life you live and so on. It sounds amazing. It sounds fantastic. But it's not always just happy, 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 is it? Well, no, of course not. Nothing in life ever is. I mean, we've all got the, our ups and downs in life. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a very, very private family life away from all the, the, the glitz and the glamour um, that has got, you know, real content, real problems, real, re, real situations that, that have to be dealt with. I mean, I suppose... Some people sometimes look at people in my business and kind of think that we were born into the business and we were born to do what we do. But but the truth is we're not. I mean, I I, I had a very, very real hard, hard uh, kind of working class upbringing before Boys On was ever even an idea, you know. Um, I mean, I, I, I was working, I was out working the age of 13, 14 years of age, trying to bring in extra cash at home um, to help my parents. You know, I mean, they worked very, very hard. But, you know, where we grew up and, you know, and, and life in Dublin back in the 80s, it was tough, you know. 
Um, so you know, we, we were very grounded lads in boys zone for that reason that we were that we weren't born into it. But yes, I mean to answer your question, there's there's a lot of other things. There's a lot of uh, kind of uh, moving parts in, in everybody's life, and especially people that are in the um, uh, that are in the public eye. Um, people kind of assume that that's the only part of your life, but you, you, nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors. Nobody knows that you know. When I go home, you know, I've got all sorts of of, of, of upset to deal with, or or maybe I don't. Maybe I go home and and life is absolutely brilliant and and, and dreamful, you know. But but it's never it's never either or or, or, or the other, um, all of the time, you know. You know, I suppose it's like Forrest Ghost's life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> hey, listen, any interview that quotes Forrest Gump is is going straight to the top of my favourite chats because that. <laughs> <All right. laughs> That's a seminal movie, if ever there was one, Keith. I mean, no, it's it's like, who was it that said it? Is it Michael Stipe that wrote that lyric? It's been a bad day. Please don't take my picture. Yeah, I, I mean, th- that's the truth behind it, really. I mean, look, there was a, I was listening to the radio driving the other day, and um, they had people on the ground from the radio station stopping people ra- randomly and asking them, um, is it okay for celebrities or people with familiar faces to get annoyed when somebody stops them outside of their work and asks them out, outside of of their work hours? So in their own in their own personal life, yeah, you know, yeah. whether it be walking the street or in a restaurant or at the cinema or whatever, is it okay for a celebrity to get annoyed to get upset with them for looking for excuse me an autograph or a photograph? You know, and it was bizarre to hear the reaction. I was pleasantly surprised, actually. Most people's reaction was, you know, everybody is entitled to a private life. You know, when you're working, when you're kind of, you know, out there doing the thing that you do that makes you, you know, famous or, or a celebrity, you know, by, by all means, you know, you should be um, able to be approached by people and people that have put you where you are and people that have helped your career along the way. You should absolutely have time for those people in that environment. But when you're in an environment of family and, and, and private life, you know, you know, what, what is the right and wrong way to go forward? Should you be available to people all the time? Should you be able to walk away from the dinner table in a restaurant where, you, where, you're, where you're dining with your, with your wife and your children to get a photograph taken? Or should you be allowed to say, excuse me, sorry, I'm with my family. I'm having my dinner. Um, if, if you don't mind, when I'm finished eating, um, I possibly might be able to take a photograph, but for now I'm I'm a bit tied up. Nobody can give you the kind of the right or wrong answer. It, yeah. It's all down to the individual, really, you know. Yes, and it, I mean I'm assuming you you get scores of these issues, Keith. I, I can imagine actually having to say that. Can I just finish my food first, sort of thing? Must be really difficult, actually, because then people kind of shuffle back to their table and they probably say under their breath, "Oh, cool, can't believe you didn't have time for us," and all this kind of thing. Even though you've kind of said, "Just give me a beat." Let me have some family time, and and then you get your picture. You can't win, yeah, really, can you? Again, again, you can't generalize. You can't generalize because some people will completely understand your predicament, will, will respect your your request, and and they'll be happy to sit and wait. Whereas then you've got the other people, like the, the people you just mentioned, that will speak under their breath, and possibly get on social media and call you all sorts of names. Um, and then without your permission, um, and, and people think they're being very clever, but honestly, God, I've seen it all before. You know, they pretend to be on their phone, but they're videoing you or they're taking photographs of you. Um, and that can be very upsetting. Look, you know, when they do that, when I'm sat on my own in an airport or a train station, it's funny, okay, because I'll pick up my phone. And I learned this from the, the late, great Stephen Gately. He was brilliant at this. You know, and back in those days, you know, phones were only starting to have cameras on them. They weren't smartphones. They're just phones with cameras. And if he ever caught people taking a photo of him or videoing him without asking him, um, he would just do the same back. He'd walk over uh. to their face and he would take a picture of them. He'd go, now, I've got your photograph too. And he's, he's so funny. Brilliant. He'd make the rest of us laugh, you know. Listen, I, I'll be very honest. And if any of you, I don't know whether you take callers or not, Andy, I'm sure um, anybody out there that's met me will tell you. Um, I, you know, I, I would be one of the most approachable people in, in the business. I've been in the business now since 92, 93, which is what, nearly 28 years. And I was very, very aware um, that, you know, you have to have time for the people that put you where you are. It's easy to say, no, I'm busy. It's easy to kind of keep walking and ignore the excuse me. But it's, you know, it takes somebody else with a bit of integrity to 
to kind of stop, acknowledge the people that are asking you for something, you know, listen to what they have to say, and then make a judgment on whether it's the right or wrong thing to do. But just to ignore it blankly is just rude, in my opinion. Um, I do believe we all are entitled to a private life. Um, so when I'm dining with my children, and I have a daughter with special needs, and, and I don't like people taking the photograph of me with my family, and, and that's, of course, it's agreed by me um, previously. Um, if I'm on my own, it's a different scenario altogether. But when with the family and with my kids, you know, I, I, I would be the first to say, and I'd be very polite, but I would say, listen, I appreciate your, your support, but please, um, can you just, you know, respect my, my privacy for, for, for half an hour while I have dinner with my family? And then I'll only be too happy to, to, to join you for a drink or to get a photograph taken or whatever it is you might be looking for. But just, you know, I, I chose to be in this business. I chose to throw myself into it, but my family didn't make that choice. Mm. So, they, they, you know, they still, you know, they're still entitled to, to, to have a private meal without being interrupted, you know. Yes, I, I completely hear you, Keith, and and you're absolutely right when it when it comes to you know taking photographs of your family, your kids, and so on. That, that that's not cool. That's that's overstepping. I mean, Keith, I'm going to sort of it's slightly playful, really, but one of the challenges I'm guessing you have is you're quite a good looking fella. Do you know what I mean? You're a handsome man, so you, you're. Ah, quite... we just stop. God, you know all the right things to say. Don't <laughs> you? <laughs> no, but you are, Keith. Come on, you're you're a, you're a good looking fella, and therefore and. and Man, you're 47 at the moment. You don't look it. You're going to have to give me some tips because I'm. I look about 100 at the moment. But you, <laughs> you are quickly recognisable. You know, you were in kind of one of the biggest bands in the world for such a long time. You're still a huge, huge known person, massively in the public eye. So, do you ever? I'm kind of getting a little bit Beatles about here, but do you ever do a disguise? No, no. Oh. It's, it's, it's it's quite a bizarre one to be honest because. You know, when in Boyzone, I wasn't, I didn't do the lead vocals. I mean, that was predominantly Rona Keaton and Stephen Gately. And, you know, we were suppressed, the other three of us, because Louis Walsh had this kind of belief, you know, that the sound of Boyzone was Ronan and Stephen. And, and we had such success, you know, with them singing, singing the lead vocals in the, in, in the singles that it was kind of like the, the situation was if it's not broken, don't fix it. So mm. as, as a result, we were pushed to the back quite a bit. And, you know, with that, then you lose your confidence, your self-esteem, your belief in yourself, you know. And then when you do get an opportunity to stand up and sing, you, you, you know, you don't have the confidence that you would have had had you been up the front all along. Right. Um, so it's quite bizarre how, how often and regularly I am recognized because, like I said at the start of the interview, I mean, I'm, I, I, I believe I'm a very grounded person, you know. It's the women in my life that keep me very grounded, you know, my... Um, my mother, Irish mammies, you know, I mean, they don't allow for their sons to become famous and well-known. <laughs> you're, still sent to the, you're still sent over to the supermarket to get the vegetables for the dinner, regardless of your status, you know what I mean? <laughs> if dinner's being cooked and we're, we're, we're short a couple of red peppers, well, Keith, get over to those shops and get me sorted, you know. <laughs> and, you know my, my, I've been with my wife um, since, since before Boys on, so she's, we, we've been together since we were kids. So, like, I mean... She's not going to make any allowances for the fact that I chose a, a, a job in, in the public eye and, and that I'm famous or I'm a celebrity or what you, whatever word you want to use, you know. And, and then there's my daughter, Mia, who's the most amazing human being in the world. And, um, you know, Mia has autism and w wouldn't um, even, you know, begin to kind of give me any kind of praise for, for, for the job that I do because it's just your job. OK, so w with that said, you know, I live a very grounded life. Um, and it's it's bizarre, it's weird for me, the fact that I do get recognized as often as I do. And even through the pandemic, the COVID-19 thing, when we've got the opportunity to wear masks everywhere, you would imagine that that would give me, you know, a disguise and the ability to be able to go about my business, you know, without anybody interrupting me. And it's, it's so funny. I mean, I'm walking into shops with a mask and a baseball cap on. And I can already see the girl behind the counter in the shop smiling at me like she knows me. And I'm going, have I not got my mask on to myself? And I have. And she goes, she goes, God, she says, I know those eyes anywhere. How's it going, Keith Duffy? You know, it's like, wow, even with my mask on, people recognize me. It's crazy, you know. It must be like quite fun at times as well, though. I mean, I realize it's just happening all the time endlessly. But then, like, even with your mask on, that's quite, that's quite a, an accolade, isn't it? You know, even when you're in well, your... Look, I have to say to you, though, I don't see myself in those lights. I mean, the people, it's, it's my heroes that I look up to. I mean, my heroes growing up were the likes of you, too, and, 
and, and the, the the guys out of you two, Bono and Larry Mullen, the drummer from you two. I mean, to me, they're they're superstars, they're celebrities, they're they're the rock stars, you know. Um, you know, look, look, I don't know. I suppose they list Hollywood actors. I mean, Michael Jackson. I mean, you know, Mariah Carey. I mean. I don't know. I, I've never really looked at myself on 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 a, on, a, on a level playing field with these superstars. So it's difficult for me. It's like, you know, I look at all these reality TV shows that we have now. You know, uh, and whether it's Love Island or, or or you know, my wife watches these Married at First Sight or Love Is Blind or there's all these reality shows where these people, you know, are go on to become celebrities and have like you know three million followers on their Instagram page and. They go around the world getting paid to turn up at events and stuff. And I go to myself, well, you know, it's, I, I don't really believe in that. I don't, I don't really respect that because for me, um, I mean, the word celebrity, I don't like anyway. But I mean, you have to do the graph to, to, to earn your time, yeah. to, to earn your 15 minutes. You know, whether it be going through acting school and, and, and being a jobbing actor, working in coffee shops and getting your first acting gig and working in the local fringe theater and then maybe getting an audition and getting into the West end and from the West end, maybe getting a part in, in coronation street or, you know, or, or a movie, you know, or whether you're in the music business and you start off busking at the side of the street and somebody notices you and gives you a break and you manage to get a record deal for one song and the song goes to radio and it's, you know, and, and, and you get a bit of popularity from, from the song and then you record an album and, you know, or, you know, when you're, when you're a TV presenter and you start at the bottom and you're hosting the local panto and you're doing MC at a talent competition and then somebody notices you and you get a gig on TV and, you know, you, you earn your craft and you work hard and you, and you dedicate your life to your career, to your art, um, and, and, and you become famous because of your success of what you do. But to become famous for being famous, for me, is terrible. I mean, why would you want to... Give away your anonymity for 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 free. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, you're giving it away for free. No, you do that. You're preaching to the converted here, Keith. I've I've said this many times on the show. I I don't understand the appeal of the reality. It's that kind of shortcut, no talent related, instant fame. Which what buys you a bit of limelight, gets you a few newspaper headlines, might put a few quid in your pocket, but it also what we've seen gets taken away very, very quickly because it's not rooted in talent, because it's not rooted in a skill, it goes. You know, you might be known because you were the guy or the girl that had sex with that person in that space or, you know, you'd done a few push-ups so you looked good on telly a couple of times and then and then what happens? You know, the next reality show comes in and you're gone. There's no no foundation of talent. There's no foundation of graft, of work, you know, of preparation. Um, I mean, God knows when Boyzone started back in 92, 93, we weren't great at all. There was a lot of better and more talented people in the world, but we grafted hard. We had to take the good with the bad. It didn't start off on the stage of Wembley Arena. You know, we used to play clubs and pubs around Ireland. We used to get ice cubes thrown at us, money, stupences and, and, and fightances thrown at us on stage because the guys didn't like us, but the girls did. You know, we... we we did clubs from Donegal at the very north of Ireland down to down to um, down to Cork and Cove, the very south of Ireland, and we were playing to like fifty people. We were playing to two hundred people. You know, we were going into nightclubs where you know back in the nineties in the night in a disco in a disco you'd have your you'd have your popular music, but then you'd have a slow set where the guy and the girl got to do a dance, and it was when the guy got to ask the girl he fancied that she'd like to dance, and they have a they have a close kind of slow dance where, where, where they might have a little snog and um, boys don't start getting booked to play in the slot where the slow set used to be so the guys the guys used to hate us because they're, we were taking away their opportunity of snogging the local girl you know yeah yeah um, I could I could so, see so them so being beefed about that and, and <laughs> so no I mean there was a lot of graft there was a lot of sacrifice I mean don't get me wrong I'm not I'm, I'm not complaining I'm, I'm very very grateful for the opportunities that I've been given in life but the sacrifices you make with family, you don't get to sit and have breakfast with your kids every day. You don't get to tuck them into bed at night and, and, and give them a bedtime story because you're on the other side of the world working, providing, you know. Yes, it's a great opportunity for a single man, but when you become in this business and you have a family, the sacrifices are huge, you know, um, and, and you have to earn it. You really have to earn it. And you're not allowed to complain because you've been given an opportunity to travel around the world and, and see places that you never get to see usually. So, you keep your tongue, you say thank you, 
and you get on about your business. And then, like I say, you realize how important um, your, your anonymity is. And the fact that you have to give it away when you decide to be in this business is fine. But giving it away with, with, with no talent, with no foundation of hard work, without without any artistry about you, it's just crazy, you know? Yeah. yeah. Why do you think this is, Keith? Is, is this the emergence of social media? Because obviously when you and I started out, I've been broadcasting for nearly 30 years now. You've established that, you, you know, with Boyzone and everything else, 28 years and counting. So we've been around a fair chunk of time now. We've seen before mobile phones were a thing, before cameras were so accessible, certainly before Twitter and Instagram. Do you think those are the culprits for why we have this now sort of fast, urgent desire for talent-free fame? Absolutely, 100%. And, and it, my God, there's a comedic issues and its problems too because what you're seeing on social media is not factual. It's not real. These filters that are used, these are not, you know, the, the, this catfish thing that goes on. You don't know what you're dealing with, you know. and as a result, you've got typically developing children trying to be as good as their heroes, but their heroes are not even as good as their heroes. Mm-hmm. And this then brings in the whole mental health issue, you know, and we all know, you know, how mental health has grown over the last 10, 15 years and how, how, how very much alive and, and well mental health is at the moment within our society, especially after coming through a pandemic. It's putting so much pressure on the youth of today, the generation of today, the pressure is enormous on them and, and the online bullying that goes on uh, because of social media. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's terrible. And we talk about these reality stars. They've got millions of, of followers. And look, listen, I'm, I'm not judging them. I'm just saying that if, I, I just believe, you know, number one, you should be given a lesson that you're, you know, when, when, you're, when you're making that decision to give away your, your, your private life, your anonymity, when you're, when you're, you should be told, you know, the, the ups and downs, the pros and cons of, of what your decision is going to do to you. Um, and then you should decide really whether you want to give your life away. Um, look, I know a lot of people from that area, you know, from the whole um, uh, kind of um, reality TV that, that have made an absolute fortune and, and, and have provided themselves and their family a great quality of life through it. And they're being able to buy back some of their, uh, their privacy by buying big houses behind electric gates. Yeah, so I mean, there are there are the success stories, but it's not always that case, you know. And I, I think ninety percent of the time, it's not that case. It's it's you know they enjoy their fifteen minutes of fame when they're really in good shape, when they've done their few press ups, as you say, when they've got their false hand on, and they've been on TV a couple of times, and everybody in the area where they grew up think they're fantastic and they're amazing. But then the fifteen minutes is over. You're not you're not doing as many press ups anymore. The false tan has run out, and you need to go and get sugar or milk in the shops, and you go to the shops and you're photographed. And, they, and then, you know, you, you, you were only too delighted to be photographed and pressed everywhere when you were looking fantastic. And now you're being photographed a little bit overweight, probably not as tanned, not as confident as you might have been before. And you're still photographed and you still, your, your, your picture's being put up. And then this causes you to have kind of mental health issues and, and depression and anxiety. You know, I mean, these are, the, these are the things that we're trying to protect our children from. So, I mean, talking about on radio is great. You know, but it's true. And for me, it's so it's so transparent. You know, you're setting yourself up for a fall. You know, if you really want to be famous, you know, go go and and, and go to college, go to arts college, learn. You know, busk on the side of the road. I mean, get involved in something that you're passionate about. You know, pull out. Pull, everybody is talented. You just got to find it. You got to look for it. You got to find it. And you got to work for it. You got to caress it. You got to build it. You know, and and that will build your confidence. It will make you better better at it than you were before. Um, it's a growing process. You can't get there just by one leap. That's so insightful, Keith. And, and you're right, actually. It's, it's about as well building resilience. You know, if, you, if you're famous for talent, then like you say, you have to nurture that talent. You have to play on the side of the road. You have to go home with a cap with a few, a few coins tossed in it and nothing more and so on because it builds you up. It gives you that, that kind of rhino hide of, of invincibility so that by the time fame comes, you're untouchable. You're not bothered by trolls on social media and so on because you've had to graft to get there whereas if it's an instant boom i'm famous yay look at me aren't i brilliant the minute those nasty people turn around and go actually no you're not you've got no defense against it you've got no defense and you've got no depth of character you know the depth of character is brought on not only by success but by failure too you know and those difficult times when you can't succeed and difficult times look at you know i mean the boys from boys own and you know, and a lot of the bands that I knew, we, you know, we, we, the five of us were all born in the north side of Dublin. 
Um, there was, there were, you know, I remember asking my mom when I was very young, were we rich? And she told me that we were rich in love. And I thought that was a cop out. And now I kind of understood what she meant. Mm. Um, you know, financially, we certainly were nowhere near rich. You know, we, we, there was bills to be paid at the end of the week. My mom and, and my dad worked. They provided very well. We ate very well. We were dressed very well, but we didn't have an awful lot left after that. You know, um, there wasn't an awful lot left after that. We didn't have um, foreign holidays, you know. Um, if we were lucky, you know, you go to a mobile home park on, on, in the coast, the east coast of the west coast of Ireland, you know. And to be honest, they were the best holidays we ever had in our lives. I mean, some of the best memories I have as a child is in one of those mobile home parks, you know, down in, in Wexford or in in, in, in Kerry or in one of the coastal um, kind of counties of Ireland and they're the most amazing happy memories that I have now you know um, and, and that didn't cost an awful lot you know what I mean so it's yeah. just it's about just keeping your feet planted on the ground and, and, and making sure you surround you surround yourself with like-minded people that keep you grounded Keith, you're quite a guru I mean listening to you it's, it's quite inspiring you, you've really got your finger on the pulse well, like I said, yeah, it's not my choice. It's that I have three women in my life that just make sure that I don't go anywhere above my station. <laughs> Keith, we've all got one of these because like like you, I have a mum that keeps me in line and, and a wife that does the same. I have three boys rather than a daughter. But nonetheless, what's your, because we've all got one, you must have one. What's your I'm being told off name by your mum? Like for me, it's Andrew. I know I'm in trouble if she starts with Andrew rather than Andy. Now you, I'm trying to count them. You've got about a million middle names. Keith, Peter, well, Thomas, yeah, Francis, Julian, John Duffy. That's, that's a long yeah, name. It's, it's when somebody addresses you by, by your, your, your Christian name, which is your first name, and your surname, which is your final name. So when somebody, when, when anybody in my family calls me Keith Duffy, then I know <laughs> then I just know instantaneously that I'm in trouble, okay? <laughs> if it's Keith, I'm fine, you know? Or Duster, which is my nickname, which most people call me, that's fine. But when somebody calls me Keith Duffy, I know, oh, shit, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's useful to have the code, though, isn't it? Because you know how to respond. Yeah, no, it's bizarre because the only people that call me by my full name, Keith Duffy, would be, like I say, at home, my family, my mother, when I'm in trouble, and or else. It's the opposite side of the coin. It's when I go to, to my like to friends' houses and I, I'm getting maybe to meet their kids and they've got younger kids. Um, you know, they've they've got younger kids under the age of ten or twenty even that never really heard of Boyzone and don't know who Keith Duffy is, you know. And then they meet me for the first time and then they might Google me and then when they meet me for the second time, they talk to me with my full name. They go, <laughs> Hi Keith Duffy. <laughs> How are you, Keith Duffy? You know, and, and it's really funny because it's only kids that we young kids that do it. And you know, you know instantly that you've been Googled before you've arrived because they call you by your full name. You know, it's very funny. Hello, it's John Marco here from our sister podcast, The Driven Chat Podcast. Right now, you're listening to The Andy J Podcast, and it's quite good, isn't it? In fact, do me a favour, give it a little review, five stars, and wherever you're listening, hit that little subscribe or follow button, because it does help. See you around. The Andy J Podcast. That is quite cute, actually. It, I mean, it must be quite weird, because... Obviously, we live in the present, Keith. You know, we, we have our life, which is our life, right this minute. And all the stuff that's gone before that builds you to the person you are right now. But it's it's the past. You know, Boyzone, yes, you, you've reformed and you've released other albums and you've had 25th anniversary celebrations and so on. And it is a huge part of your career. You know, it was a massive part of what built you. But it is also your past. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not who you are now. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. It doesn't define who I am now. I mean, I went on to do all sorts of other things. I mean... Um, on and off, I was in Coronation Street for 10 years. You know, I, I joined Curry for a couple of episodes, two or three episodes in 2002. And um, then I came out of the show for maybe, I think it was probably two months, three months. And there was a good reaction to the character. So they, they got in contact and said, would I go back in and do a proper three months stint? And I said I would. And, and, and I was like, one episode into the three months stint and they, and they signed me for another three months with a three months option. Um, so through the jigs and the reels, I mean, I ended up staying on and off in Corrie, going in and out um, for 10 years. My final episode in Coronation Street was in 2012, which was 10 years after I started. So, um, you know, that was a completely different scenario than Boyzone. And then from that then, people started taking me serious as an actor. So I got some really great theatre work. Um, 
back home in Ireland, um, a great writer by the name of John B. Keane had written a play years ago called Big Maggie. It was set in, in the in the early seventies, and um, I think well, actually I think it was in the late sixties, and um, uh, and uh, a great uh, production company in Ireland called Druid, which who have won awards all over all over the world, from Broadway to the West End to, to Dublin to Ireland. Um, and, and one of their directors who, who's won Tony Awards and all sorts, um, Gary Hines, um, got in contact with me and auditioned me to play a part in John B. Keane's playing Big Maggie, which we did. And we sold out all over the country. We sold out. We'd done a run in the Gazy Theatre in Dublin. And we I think we'd done a run for six or eight weeks, completely sold out. And that was an amazing experience. You know, that was a frightful and amazing experience because you're going out on stage, you know, hoping that people can see through your boy's own character of Keith Duffy. Yeah. Seeing the character of Teddy Healing, which is the name of the character I was playing. And then for you to hold them in that gaze and, and, and keep them believing that you, you are that character and then do justice to a great writer's work uh, and, you know, and, and to make people believe what you're doing. And then, uh, you know, on top of all that, to remember like a, a four or five page monologue on, on each scene that you're doing. Um, so it's just it was frightening, but I really enjoyed the the, the scare factor, the fear factor of, of of standing up there with the whites of people's eyes looking at you as you owned the stage and and delivered your lines, you know. Um, and I went on then to do work in the West End, and I, I I did a great there was a great writer by the name of Billy Roach from Wexford, and he wrote um, a play called A Handful of Stars, which is part of a trilogy written for the Tricycle in London. Um, back in the late seventies, early eighties, and um, and and that we we only did that in a fringe theatre in London, but it was it was one of it was there's only one percent of fringe theatre shows that are invited into the West End, and we got that invitation, so we went into Trafalgar Studios. Um, it's a small space in the semi round. I think it has about 140 seats. That's all, um, and we were doing eight shows a week, and it was just amazing. It was just an amazing experience to be in the half round. Um, and, and literally, you walk out on stage, you can hear a pin drop, you can see the whites of people's eyes. It's terrifying. I mean, I could stand on stage in Hyde Park in front of 125,000 people and have no issues and no problems whatsoever with boys on, and then go to the Trafalgar Studios, 140 people in the half round, and absolutely shit myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's-, it's just... It's twice Sorry, as impressive, though, isn't it, Keith? Because the thing is, you know, you go to a casting agent right now, and this is testament to your talent as an actor, actually. And the casting agent, let's say they're seeing five people for a role. Now, four of those people aren't Keith Duffy. One of them is. And you have to show him that you're able to not be Keith Duffy, which is that instant thing that, that people will see. Like you say, when you stand on a stage, people look at you and say, I think, boy zone. Or Coronation Street, or Boy's Life. You know, that's what they think. They don't kind of think, ooh, who's he going to be? And then when you start acting and you take them away from the persona that they know you as, that is a huge deal, man. That is like, that's like, you've got to work twice as hard as the other actors to get these parts, presumably. Absolutely. And sometimes, instantly as you walk into the room, it's no. Oh. You know, I, it, sometimes it's just an absolute no. Sometimes the casting director can't see past. Keith Duffy from Boys Own, and you know what? They have a job to do. They've got people to answer to, and they're not prepared to take the chance on you. So they will just go, no. You know, sometimes the audience will love the show, and the audience will decide no. And it's never, it's never the, it's never the majority. It's only a minority. Um, you know, so it takes people with balls to be able to take the chance on you sometimes. Um, and and that's exactly what a guy called Kieran Roberts did. Um, when when I started in Coronation Street, Kieran Roberts. You know, he had balls. He was the executive producer of Coronation Street. He, they wanted an Irish guy in Curry. Um, he brought me in. We spoke for an hour and a half in his office. He, he, he screen tested me twice. They auditioned me twice or three times. And, and I think, you know, it, it, you know, the casting directors, the group of people, I think the general kind of um, feeling was probably it's not a great idea. Um, but Kieran Roberts stuck, stuck to his guns. You know, he gets the last day. And uh, he gave me a chance. And uh, ultimately then, um, you know, the bizarre thing about it was, and I remember when it really was working, was because I was coming, I was I having done six or eight months in Coronation Street, and I was flying back from Malaga Airport after having a holiday with the family. I was flying back on my own early because I had to get back to work, and they were staying on for a week. And these two little kids, about 
uh, 11 or 12 years of age, two little boys came running up to me. I was in the easy jet queue to get my flight back to Manchester to go back to, 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 uh, to, to, uh, to living that, living that showbiz life, Keith, that showbiz you know, life. That showbiz Just, life what a, you know, what my, a show my, off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my private jet that's painted orange and I has easy written on the side. <laughs> and lots of other um, random friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and lots of random friends. Yeah. I'm very popular. Um, and these two kids run up to me and, and, and asked me, was I Kira? Are you Kira? Are you Kira McCarthy from Coronation Street? And um, Brilliant. that was the first time in my life that somebody had kind of not, not known who Keith Duffy from Boyzone was, but now I'm somebody else. Now I'm Kieran from, from, from Coronation Street, which was a bizarre moment. How did that and make you it, feel? It, was, it, it made me feel great. It made me feel great because it made me feel that I'd achieved the, the, the job at hand, which was, which was making people see me as somebody else. Okay, granted. They didn't have to see past Keith Duffy from Curry or from Boys On because they didn't know who Boys On were. But but they did see me as Kieran from from Curry, um, you know. And, and ultimate, ultimately, um, people that did know me from, as Keith from from Boys On, um, they're calling me Kieran uh, and then apologising for the fact, which which I thought was quite funny. But one way or another, you know, I was doing a good enough job to stay there on and off for ten years, which. Which, in fact, my, my dad, God rest him, he, he, unfortunately, I lost him a few weeks ago. Um, my, dad, my dad was always um, very, very honest with me. My dad would have been my biggest critic, you know, um, and my dad would have been the man I'd go to for advice. So when, 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 you're, when, you're, when your worst critic is, is the man you go to for, for advice and he's happy with what he sees, it's a pretty good place, you know, it's a pretty yeah. good place to be. But he would say to me, you know, um, you know, you got a contract with the Curry for three episodes and you stayed for 10 years. You, you think it was because you were good. Um, it was only because they were waiting for you to get good. <laughs> <You> <laughs> they gave you lots of learning time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they gave you lots of learning time, exactly. Oh, exactly, bless you. you know? oh, amazing. I mean, look, Keith, this, this is the first time that, that you and I have made friends. So, you know, I, I, I don't know how much I can sort of open these doors because you've, you've already asserted you are a private person. But you mentioned uh, your father, Sean, I believe his name was. He, he, he died on the 8th of January this year. Can I ask how you're doing, man? Because that, for any son, for any person, obviously, losing their father, but for any son, especially, I believe you two were really close, it's absolutely crippling, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's not something that um, any of us, I believe, can prepare for. I mean, my my dad had been sick before, um, and he was a real he was a real fighter. He, he'd never let anybody um, beat him. Or, or any illness beat him. He, he he had the big C. I remember um, it was about, uh, well, oh my God, it was 2003 or 2004. So that's possibly about 16 or 17 years ago. Um, I was getting a lift to Manchester Airport on a Friday evening, um, as usual, to, to try and get home to Dublin for the weekend to see my, my family. And I got a phone call. Um, telling me that look my dad's been given bad news that he has the big C and you know when I got home I went to see him and he was in, he was very positive he was in good form long story short he beat it he had, he had to get some chemo he had to get some radiation and you know true it was a long process don't get me wrong and it was a tough time but he got through it he beat it but it, it came back again um, and look long story short he beat it again but it came back again and the January 2020 um, which is just over 14 months ago, um, he was given the all clear for the third time, um, which we were absolutely delighted about. And, and he was very proud of because, you know, with, with going through cancer and, and, you know, receiving chemotherapy, you know, as, as a lot of people listening will know, that it can break down your immune system and it yeah. leaves you open to catch other, other insignificant um, illnesses um, that, that possibly can go on to kill you because your your immune system is low, you know. So he he, he not only had beaten cancer, he'd beaten all the, all these other insignificant kind of illnesses too. Um, his oncologist uh, brought him in then and um, just wanted to give him a checkup, make sure he was doing okay. So he had a PET scan at the end of January, I think into February. Um, and coming into March then, um, unfortunately, his oncologist told him that the cancer had come back and it had come back quite aggressively. So that was... Um, that was March 2020. Uh, sorry, 2020, 2021. So just just a year ago. Right. Um, and my dad says, "Well, look, what's the problem? We fought it before. We beat it. Let's let's fight it again." And and his oncologist said, "Look, Sean, it's going to be very hard on the body. You know, you've done this for a long time now, and 
you know, he said, I just have to tell you, like, it is going to be tough on the body. He said, look, I've done it before. I'll do it again. He was a, he was an amazing man, a, a warrior of a man, you know. And myself and my brothers are all taller than my dad. Um, like, like you, I come from, well, you have three boys. I, I come from a family of three boys. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And we were all taller than my dad. You know, my dad was only a small man, like, I think, five, seven. Um, five seven and a half maybe he would have he would have loved that extra half an inch but, <laughs> yeah. um, can't miss it you out know, and, and he, he, I'd say oh dad I'm taller than you now and my dad would always say eh, listen son you might be taller than me but you'll never be bigger than me you know and, <laughs> and it's, only, it's only in recent times I realised what he meant by that but um, uh, yeah so look it came back and he fought it again and this is the breaking you know the heartbreaking part of the story um, the Wednesday before Christmas passed um. Uh, he was brought in after a PET scan and, and his oncologist said to him, Sean, I, 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 look, I, I can't believe I'm saying this to you, but you're cancer free. You've beaten it yet again. It, you, you've got it. The, the chemo's worked. The cancer tumor's gone. You're cancer free. You're in remission. Go and celebrate Christmas with your family. And I was having all my family to my house for Christmas this year. Um, uh, everybody, my, my, my wife's folks were coming and my folks were coming and we were going to have a big celebratory Christmas in my house this Christmas. And my wife, unfortunately, got COVID two days before Christmas. Oh, no. And with my dad's immune system being so so low and stuff, we just said, look, guys, we're going to have to postpone Christmas this year because we can't take any risks. Yeah. Um, with, with any, with any, like my, my wife's folks are, are, are elderly as well, and we just didn't want to take any risks. When I say elderly, they're only in their 70s, as was my dad, you know, I mean, which is a young age these days. It is. Um. So we, 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 you know, we made all the precautions. We made sure we'd done everything right. And I delivered out a ham and turkey to my mum and dad. I delivered out a ham and turkey to Lisa's mum and dad to make sure everybody had their Christmas dinner, uh, along with a, a couple of nice bottles of wine and, and everything else, all the trimmings that goes with it, just to make sure that they were being safe and they were staying away from, from COVID. Um, and my, my dad um, left the house, I think it was about the 29th. We're making out it was the 29th and 30th of, of December. Um, felt very ill on New Year's Eve was taken into hospital on the 2nd of January he was diagnosed with COVID and died on the 8th of January oh, so it was all very very sudden especially after being sent home to celebrate after his long battle with cancer and I haven't beaten it for the fourth time so um, yeah you're asking me how am I doing I, I'm doing I'm doing what I think my father would expect me to do which is stand tall look after the family look take care of my mother and and you know when I have a moment of silence, I, I crawl under a rock and I have a little cry. Um, but but yeah, I mean it's 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 tough losing a parent and 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 my dad was my hero. He was the reason I'm in the music business. He was a singer. He played accordion from the age of eight. He was a, a piano player. He played guitar. Um, you know he he was he was an all rounder. You know on on the amateur circuit, yeah, maybe because he was a tailor as well. Um. But yeah, you know, it's 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 one of those things that I suppose you learn day by day, and, and and they say time is a great healer, and I think what they know what they mean by that is, you know, a greater amount of time comes between the moment when you get hit, struck by the thunderbolt of lightning of reality that he's gone, and you have your moment of weakness and sadness and, and emotion, and you pick yourself up because of the great memories that you have, and and you move forward, um, but like. The reality is losing a parent is possibly one of the worst things in the world that can happen to you. You know, and, and, and I'm feeling that now. Um, I'm sad. I'm sad for my dad because, you know, he had fought so hard not to not to let this beat him. And then just to kind of get uppercut by COVID and uh, when he when he wasn't watching. Um, you know, he didn't he wasn't ready to go and he hadn't prepared himself for, for, for you know, making that transition to to the next life, and and that was the sad part about it, you know, in the hospital, um, sitting sit, sitting with him in his final hours, and um, I think you know the palliative care team had, had made him very comfortable, but uh, having said that, like he hadn't the strength to talk to us then, but you could see his emotion in his face and and the reality in his face, that moment when he realised that he wasn't going to get better, when he realised we were all there for a reason, that he was making his journey, and. Uh, that was possibly the, the saddest thing that, that, that I've ever seen, you know, um, especially and frustrating too, because when, when you see someone you love in that, in that, in that vulnerable situation, you want to try and help. And when you're helpless, when there's nothing you can do, it becomes apparent, you know, that that's what makes it very, very sad and upsetting. But, you know, 
he, he, he leaves a great legacy behind him uh, in his kids and his grandchildren and what he achieved himself in life and um, from the memories that he gave us. So, um, yeah, it's sad and it's unfortunate, but you have to try and find the positives. And, and my dad was a very strong, sturdy man. And um, like I said to you earlier on, we might have been taller than him, but we'll never be bigger than him. And uh, I try to have his strength in everything I do now. But yes. thank you for asking. Um, I appreciate it. Well, bless you, mate. You know, I'm 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 really sorry. I, I didn't know the ins and outs, and, and and you know, it's it's not my business to ask. But I I, I, I was so, sort of checking if you were okay because it's it's one of those things that I think everybody dreads. It's that I think the two things that that the adults fear are losing children and losing parents, and one of them we know well, is going to be. I mean, it's a different story. A parent should never have to bury a child. I yeah. mean, that's a different scenario altogether. It People is. get old, they get sick, we expect them to pass on. But when somebody loses their life way too early, uh, uh, you know, and a parent has to bury a child, that, that's a different scenario altogether. I mean, that's something that I never want to experience. And I, ple- I pray to God that I never do. You know, we, we, we love our children dearly. And, and, you know, like I say, it's, it's not easy losing any member of a family or a friend. You know, losing anybody is difficult, but, you know, losing a parent is particularly bad, but certainly nowhere near what it would be like to lose a child. No, of, of course not. I wasn't I wasn't sort of making that comparison. I was just saying it's one of those things that you're always you always have it in the back of your mind. You know, the, 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 yeah, the nightmare scenario and, and, and you were aware. And that... Andy, you, you asked me the question and I was I was I was I was happy, you know, you're saying it was none of your business. I could have said that, but I was happy to answer you because, I, I, you know, I, I'm enjoying our conversation. And I'll always be honest with someone that who, who's, who's done their homework and knows what they're talking about, because that's great. You appreciate it in this business. Oh, bless you, mate. Well, uh, you know, thank you for that. That's that, that's really kind of you. I mean, I, I know you've you've probably done many thousands of interviews in your life. So I, I'm sort of aware coming into this that, you, you know, there might be a degree of you just going through the motions because all the people ask the same old questions and the same stuff comes up. So when when you have the opportunity to be real like you have been, I, I really do appreciate it, Keith, because it's... Well, no, listen, it's my pleasure because, honest to God, you do, like you say, I've done millions of interviews in the past and it's only when you get onto a journalist or a, a presenter, or a journalist presenter or something, you know, after the first or second question, that they've done absolutely no homework at all. They haven't, you know, prepared for the interview. They don't really give a shit who you are. They're not trying to promote whatever it is you're selling. They're just doing their job or what they're told to do. So when you get somebody like you that knows their history, that has done their homework, that knows the person, it's so like in, 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 exhilarating that you know you can ask me anything now, and I'll probably tell you. <laughs> What's your pin number, Keith? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'd have to ask my wife. Hang on. <laughs> oh, good times, mate. Good times. Well, bless you. That, I mean, that's really kind. Let's let's talk about fatherhood in that case, Keith, because it's something that's very important to both of us. I think it is. It's fair to say, in the in the brief time that you and I have got to make friends here, you know, it, it's very clear to me that that like me, fatherhood is something that you are intensely proud of, and it. And it hopefully defines who you are as a man. Yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, yeah. I mean, the relationship I have with my children, I love dearly. I have to say, I mean, I'd be lost without both of them. Um, it's amazing, and that's the, the one thing that the COVID, the pandemic, really did for me. Uh, it gave me an opportunity to spend, you know, quality, undivided time at home. And in this business, it's something that we never usually get. You know, I've always been based in Dublin and Ireland even though through the whole boys' own uh, days and obviously the Corrie stages and, and more recently the boys' life stages, a lot of our, our work is based in the UK. A lot of our work is based out of London. and uh, We tried to base it from Manchester because both Brian, myself, Brian McFadden, obviously, who, who's in boys' life with me, both of us have a base in Manchester. So um, basing ourselves there is a lot easier than London. But London is a place that we, we have to visit quite a lot as well. Um, so you get to spend a lot of time away from home. You know, you, you, you spend a lot of time on tour. It's like I said earlier on in the interview, you have to sacrifice. When you have a family in this business, you have to sacrifice a great deal. When you're single in this business, you have the time of your life, I would imagine, allegedly, because I've never been single. <laughs> I was going to say, you've never known that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I've had loads of friends in this business that I've watched have a great time. <laughs> yeah, and I bet you've been well, thrilled for them. <laughs> I was absolutely over the moon for them. I know, but but you know, it was it was never an option for me to move the family to the UK because my daughter Mia, who's twenty two, uh, who's twenty two, this yesterday, month, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, um, 
she 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 was diagnosed with autism at eighteen months, and uh, she was nonverbal until she was seven, uh, just over seven years of age. Gosh, and right. to any parent li- listening, you can imagine how scary that is when you when you when you like I, I had a, um, a typically developing uh, son, uh, firstborn Jay, uh, who's going to be twenty six next month, um, and then four years later we have Mia, who who is a completely different child altogether. That. Um, was non-responsive. We had no idea what was going on. We really didn't know what we were talking about. Ultimately, she was diagnosed with autism at 18 months. Um, and we were lucky to have that diagnosis that young because yes, that is there was rare. a waiting list in Ireland for diagnosis of up to three years. So wow. I had to pull strings. I had to pay privately. I had to do all sorts of stuff to get a diagnosis. And you need a diagnosis before you can avail of any services or even find out what services are available. Yes. Um, and I say it like that because when we were diagnosed and we could avail of the services, we realized there weren't any. Um, and we had to provide them ourselves, which took me down a whole different route in, in my life that I didn't expect. And I started up a charity and I started up an awareness campaign, a fundraising campaign to try and implement and put in place the appropriate intervention for children with autism and pe- and children and their families affected by autism. And that took up a great deal of my life. I sacrificed my career for a few years and, and until I got a, a better handle on, on my daughter and where she needed to go and what she needed to, to happen for her. Um, I'm delighted to kind of make a long story short to tell you that she's now finishing her fourth year in university oh, doing um, uh, enterprise computing. Um, she's just interviewed for many of the bigger companies in the world like Microsoft, Dell, uh, Amazon, Google. And um, I'm, I'm delighted to say that she has had uh, a formal offer from a, a large company for, for uh, to start her, her post-grad. Um, so to come from where we've come from with a non-verbal daughter with autism to, um, to receiving a, a, post, a post-grad offer from a major, major um, worldwide company is just phenomenal for us. And it's nothing to do with me or who I am or what I do. She has done it all for herself. Um, but the point I was making was because of this disability, I always had to keep my base in Ireland because the education that we had provided for her was second to none and she possibly wouldn't have received it uh, as, as, as well in the UK. Um, and obviously the sacrifice we made now have paid off now with, with, with the fact that Mia's future looks very bright. Um, but like this, as a father, I spent a great deal amount of time away from home trying to provide for their future and make sure they'd have a good quality of life. Um, but through the pandemic, all work was cancelled. We were all sent home, and I got to spend nearly two years stuck in the house for the first time in my <laughs> life with my with my wife and my two kids. And the four of us, the first two or three weeks was difficult because we had to get used to each other. We had to find out, you know, they had a routine that I wasn't part of, um, and they had to open up and let me in. And um, do you know what? I never appreciated the, my home, my garden. I never, you know, I never really kind of took any great value for it because I was never here that much. Um, but through the whole pandemic, I got to appreciate and really understand my family. And we got so, I thought we couldn't get closer. I thought we were a close-knit family already. But the friendships that we have now, we, we don't only love each other, we like each other too. And, and you know, I, I, that is a blessing that this, the silver lining that this COVID, this pandemic has given us. This, you know, it, it took my father away, but but it also it gave me a much better quality of life with my family. So, you know, you've got to be grateful for, the, for you know, for, for the positive things as well. Absolutely. No, you, you, you always have to count your blessings. And, and, and one thing that I think is is worth pointing out as well, Keith, just in case the, the listeners haven't kind of made the connection, is hearing Mia's success and, and how brilliant that, that she's gone on to shine. I, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to hear that. Is, is that we need to be kind of aware of that word autism and not afraid of it, actually. Well, that's it. That's, I mean, what I say is, I mean, the, you, hear, you hear people saying, oh, that guy is autistic or that girl is autistic. And I go, no, they're not. Because that's not, that's not who they are. That's, you know, and that's not what they are, you know. That, that, that guy over there has autism. Or that young, young girl over there is a girl with autism. They're not autistic. They, they're, you know, it, it, that's just something personal to me. I just think, you know, by, by kind of branding someone autistic it is wrong. Um, saying that person has autism. No, you know, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yes, I do. It's, yes, it's, you know, it's it doesn't enabling define people. Them. It, yeah, yeah, it doesn't define who they are. You know, it's not what they are. Uh, autism is not is not what they are. You know, having autism is who they are. You know what I mean? It's a different. Um, yeah, and, and look, you know, with the right intervention and, and, and early intervention and and 
uh, hard work, you know, great things are achieved, you know, and, and there is light at the end of the tunnel for those families out there that ever seen. Yes, and, and this is something that you've been a, a terrific advocate for for a, for a long time, actually, Keith. And, and I, you know, more power to you. I'm, I'm so pleased that, that famous voices like yours have been lending yourselves to such important causes because it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's really necessary for people to have a better understanding and, and not to be afraid of these things. Uh, and actually, this leads us on to something that I promised you we'd, we'd talk about, Keith, and I, I'm afraid we're lo- losing it towards the end, but we'll, we'll make the most of the time we've got left because you are so sort of immersed in, in understanding progression through children and seeing, seeing kids blossom through different ways that there's been this, this new Imagination Index report about called Teaching Through Toys. And you've been you've been swatting up about it about what's happened basically during the pandemic to our children. Well, yeah. Look, this is, it's not even that I'm swatting up about it. It's, uh, it's something I'm, I, I know only too well. You know, through looking at the various educational systems that, that are put in place for children on the spectrum, or even children with ADHD or whatever type of disability. You know, learning through playtime is very, very important. You know, and the, through the pandemic, uh, um, Zuru. Uh, toys who, who are a very very successful toy company um, have, have spent a fortune you know having a report done to find out the percentages and the statistics of how playtime is so important for children um, you know uh, n- n- neurotypical children and n- neurodiverse children you know um, and, and it's, it's, it's just trying to, to preach and to get out there the importance of playtime with children the, the importance of the various different objects you know because playtime is educational you know uh, the likes of a tablet you know the likes of a tablet now you know whatever make it might be samsung apple whatever it might be there's apps on these tablets now that are so educational for kids and they love to use them you know and it's 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 better than sitting in front of a computer game for for 12 hours you can sit in front of a tablet there's apps on there that help with speech that help with learning that help with colors that help with animals i mean it's we didn't have a tablet back in the day of when my, my daughter probably, you know, could have really, really done with one. You know, we didn't have the apps. We had to have physical toys to play with, educational toys to play with. And that's why I'm delighted this company, Zuru, because they are a multi-million pound, multi-billion pound company. Um, but they've, they've invested huge money into, into, the, into the statistics of how important playtime can be on a learning um, uh, side, not, not just on a play side. Like these new fidget toys, that kids are playing with, you know, they're, they're, they're amazingly important for children on the spectrum that find ordinary kind of scenarios or ordinary places, you know, scary places, you know, supermarkets, restaurants, um, anywhere you have to go, like a waiting room in a doctor's uh, surgery, anywhere, all of these places where there's other human beings there. Um, the environment can be a very scary place for children on the spectrum. So to give them some sort of a, a toy, to calm them down in that scenario, to keep them, you know, happy within their environment is very important. So these new fidget toys are, are, are gas. I mean, I've, I've seen loads of kids playing with them, but I didn't really kind of know what they were. And it's only since reading up now, I've, I've realized that they, they are educational because they help you count, they help you calm, they help you, you know, just, just you know, uh, um, kind of isolate yourself from the distractions that are around you, that upset you, that could cause you to have, you know, upsetting moments. Yes. I mean, there's, there's things that set kids off in our ordinary development. Like if you go into a supermarket, for example, and you have a fluorescent tube that might need replacing, so it's kind of flickering and flashing, that can make a child with autism go into a panic, go into a tantrum, and it's out of fear. It's not out of they're being naughty. Children are both kids. They're actually terrified, you know, and to the untrained eye, to the ignorant eye, you know, other people look upon and go, oh, that child just needs a good slap in the bum. They're very naughty children. But ultimately, you know, the, par- the parents are there trying to kind of keep their child happy, you know. Um, so, so kind of helping the child and educating the child how to calm themselves down in an environment that's scary is very important. And toys and playtime are a very educational time for these children. And it's trying to get that message out there that it is important. Yes, absolutely. Especially through the pandemic, that's, what, that's when parents re- really realised. Because they were trying to educate their kids through playtime what COVID was, what a pandemic was, well, you know, what trans diversity is, you know, and um, trying to educate kids on, on the ways of the world today through playtime. Yeah, and, and, and actually the, the study has been really, really impactful. 
you know, that Zuru, as you say, have, have done it. And, and one of the things that struck out for me, because, of course, all our kids, they weren't able to go to school. They weren't able to socialise and so on. 29% of British kids have said that, that during the pandemic they felt more irritable. 26% felt more sad throughout the course of the pandemic. And, that, you know, these are, these are big numbers of kids here. And actually to sort of to kind of read through the, the, the importance of these toys and gadgets that help with stress and anxiety. You know, you've mentioned the tablets, books are a big one, fidget toys, as you say, plush toys, arts and crafts, you know, these things. And, and then there's the toys that help you with facilitating learning and books, understandably, right at the top of that, Keith. But, but let's not rule out the others in there. Puzzles, arts and crafts, the tablet again, and playing board games, you know, getting involved with your children, doing things with them, using board games, using arts and crafts, tablets and so on. Get stuck in, help them. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, most kids today know how to use a smartphone. From the age of <laughs> eight months old, they know how to use a smartphone. That's true, yeah. but, but, you know, that's fine. That's okay. You know, but, but get the apps on the phone that are educational, that are going to help them survive in our society, that are going to help their minds build and, and grow. Um, I mean, look, my daughter's 22 now, and like I said, she's doing great. We're very proud of her. But when we go out sometimes to a restaurant or to, to anywhere we have to go, she can find the distractions around her terrifying. So she does Sudoku, um, and she loves her Sudoku. Oh, so great. she'll always pack her Sudoku in her bag with her in case she finds herself in an environment where she's not comfortable or she's not happy. And she'll take out her Sudoku and she'll just, she'll, she'll block out everything around her and she'll do her Sudoku. If she gets fed up doing Sudoku, she'll take out puzzles. She'll take out like crosswords. She'll take it. So she's, you know, and this is something that we implemented years ago. So now she knows her figures. She knows her words. She knows her word search. Um, and, and that's very educational. And it's helped her no end in college and studies, you know. And like I say, she's in a fourth, fourth year in university now. And yeah, I have to kind of remind people me, me didn't go to, to ordinary school. Me, me was like, you know, nonverbal until she was seven years of age, you know, but with the right um, playtime and educational playtime, which makes it enjoyable for the kids so they're not dreading doing it, helps them learn on a, on a basis that they're continuing to learn the whole time. And the difference, the long term difference is massive, but you've got to start somewhere. Yes, absolutely. And, and it sounds to me, Keith, if you don't mind me saying that, that Mia's luckiest break was having you and your wife as her parents. Well, it's, it's very kind of you to say. And I think, well, I owe Mia a great deal because, you know, I, like I said earlier on, I, you know, I, I was working early from an early age. I was, I was selling potatoes and vegetables from the side of the road when I was 13 or 14 years of age, you know, just trying to kind of help, help situations at home. Um, not that they were that they were that bad, but I was always a grafter, and I always liked having a few pounds in my pocket or a few pence in my pocket. So I had to go out and make it for myself, you know. Um, so you know, academically, I never would have given myself much credit. In fact, I didn't enjoy school very much at all. Um, and through Mia's situation, I've had to go back and learn and read an awful lot more than I ever read before. I had to scour the internet, Google everything, uh, educate myself, and learn. And I never really believed I had the ability to be able to learn and to do what I did or to su- succeed in where, the way I succeeded unless Mia kind of challenged me. And um, so I owe her a great deal because I have a lot more respect for myself now than I ever did before. And that's down to the challenges that were put in front of me because of, of my daughter. What a lovely thing to hear. Keith, It's it's been a, a really Really interesting, fascinating and, and very educational hour chatting to you, actually. I, I really appreciate your company. Thank you very much. Listen, it, it's likewise. Um, as, as they said in the movie, ghost, ditto. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, go and get my, I'll go and get my pottery wheel, Keith. <laughs> yeah, but just make sure I don't come up behind you. That wouldn't be nice. <laughs> oh, look, look, we've, we've got to mention, of course, the band. We've, we've only touched on Boys Life, of course, which you're going on tour again. I'm sorry, I should have said that earlier on. Of course, anybody that isn't aware of this, they should be. You've you've had this band with Brian. In fact, we spoke to Brian a couple of years ago on this show about it. Uh, you know, you and Brian McFadden have been pulling up trees uh, with Boys Life. I mean, you've been touring everywhere. You've got tunes out left, right and centre. And that's going to continue, isn't it? Absolutely. Only yesterday, yeah, Friday, we brought out our third single from our first debut album. Um, well, when I say do, debut album, we brought, out, we brought out an album of our favourite boys on a Westlife song with the Royal Philharmonic, an 84-piece orchestra. And we brought that out during the pandemic, yeah. during the lockdown. But we've recently brought out a very first self-penned original album 
uh, called Old School, and it's on all the ordinary on your usual platforms. Um, our third single, um, a little saving, came out yesterday, and it's and you, you can find it. It's it's there. And um, our first single was called the one. The second was called uh, Burn for You. But our third single called the little saving came out yesterday, and. It's a song that we wrote, being very aware of mental health in our environment, in our industry, and in our life today. So give it a listen and uh, see what you think. I'm all over it. Keith, you're a top man. I've really enjoyed this chat. Thank you very much for your company. Thank you very much, Andy, and thanks to your listeners for listening in. Amazing. Have a great day, Keith, and I wish you all the success. I can't wait to see what happens next. The Andy J Podcast. 